We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we, might, we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, yet if I had not, no, yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am one of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at my hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God. With my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I just wanted to introduce myself and um, welcome you. Glad, glad that you're here and glad to be continuing on uh, through our series um, in the book of Romans this morning, and I'm eager to get into this passage, so uh, I don't want to uh, waste any more time. I'd like to jump straight in, so please uh, pray with me, and then we'll, we'll get to it. Our holy triune God, thank you for the gift of another Lord's Day. 
May we never take for granted the great privilege it is to gather with your people and interrupt our individual self-obsession to turn our attention to you in reverent worship and submission. Lord, our hearts are heavy for this land this morning and the people in it, our kinsmen according to the flesh. We lament the division and corruption and idolatries and selfishness and pride so ubiquitous in this land. This is a godless people intent on calling all manner of evil good and slandering that which is good as evil. And Lord, we pray for our leaders. We pray that you bring them to their knees in submission to you and your righteousness. Lord, it appears as though the erosions of this nation's civil civil integrity is afoot and that it may be your judgment on this nation. And if so, Lord, we readily admit that this nation deserves what it has coming to it. God, when we parade, when we call abominable, uh, what, what, what you call abominable is paraded around in our streets and consecrated as noble. When we stop fearing you and start fearing man grabbing for political power at the cost of neighbor. When we murder the equivalent of city populations by the year in abortions. When we engage in all manner of idolatry and hero worship, this nation does not deserve any blessing. Lord, help us as your church, by contrast. Help us. Help us to be a holy people, a people who are not beholden to the suicidal worldliness that we are surrounded by. Help us to be a city set on a hill and a light to the nations. Help us to fear you above all else. Help us to be unafraid. Of the future, for we know that judgment from you is better than the blessings from man. Be with us now. Feast on your word. Set a table for us in the wilderness. Nourish our souls with your revelation. We look to you as those who are in absolute need of your grace. And we dare ask any of this only in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in this passage, uh, Paul is trying to illustrate for us the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the absolute inability of the law to by itself do anything about it. That's what this passage is trying to teach us. The exceeding sinfulness of sin and the inability of the law by itself to do anything about it. Paul wants for us to put absolutely no confidence in the flesh. Next week, he's going to describe uh, the, the law of the Spirit and what it means to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But before he gets there, he's trying to show us how potent sin is and how weak the flesh is. And he's doing this so as to disabuse us of the idea that we can possibly do anything to obey the law of God with the resources of our own flesh. He wants to disabuse us of that foolish idea. And so let's let him do that. Look at verse one with me. Verses one through six. These are the words of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress If she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. 
And if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so here Paul is restating his argument that he made in the last chapter with another analogy. So if you remember in in all of this, he's trying to remind the believers in Rome who they are. He's trying to remind them of who they are and who they're not. So in the first section of Romans 6, he tells them that they are dead to sin and alive in Christ. The, The animating principle of their whole selves, what used to be the animating principle of their whole selves, that is rebellion against God, Paul says, has been crucified when they were spiritually baptized into Christ. That is, when they were united to Christ by faith. And he concludes that whole section by saying, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's saying, you don't have to keep acting like a dead man. You were dead in your trespasses. You don't have to keep acting like that person anymore. Be who you are. Stop being who you're not. And then in the second half of Romans 6, Paul brings texture to this analogy by, uh, of this, this whole analogy of being dead to sin. He adds texture to it by adding another layer to the analogy. That is the analogy of slavery. As we saw last week, we are always, always giving ourselves over to be enslaved to a master. Before we were saved by grace, our slave master was sin and we had to obey him. There was no option for us. Now we have been liberated from the cruel, oppressive enslavement to sin and have been brought under the benevolent authority of Christ. We no longer are slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. And so Paul urges us, he urges us to stop offering our bodies over to the cruel slave master that we've just been freed from. Be who you are, stop being who you're not. And so now, in this first section of Romans 7, he builds on all of this with yet another analogy, the analogy of marriage. And the way that he applies this analogy to our situation is consistent with what he said before, and it's really striking. Paul says that before, before Christ saved us, we were a spouse to sin. We were sin's Wife submitting to him and bound to his doom under the wrath of God. But since we died in Christ, that marriage is no longer binding. We have died in Christ. We're no longer married to sin. And now we've been married to Christ. His fate is now our fate. We get what he gets. And death, death is the key to why Living for Christ and not for sin is not cheating on sin. 
We're not cheating on sin by being holy because we're not married to sin anymore. Just like how a slave master has no ability to command work from a slave corpse, so too a husband cannot demand conjugal rights from a wife who is buried six feet under. As far as sin is concerned, Paul is saying, you're dead. You're dead to him. You don't have to listen to his commands for obedience as a slave master anymore. You don't have to listen to his wooings as a husband anymore. You're dead to him. And all of this implies that sinning is tantamount to spiritual adultery. You're married to Christ. So, be who you are. Stop being who you're not. That's the point of this passage. And I want you to notice in verse 5, Paul says that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we are released from the law. So we should be asking, why does Paul bring the law into this analogy? Isn't the analogy that we're enslaved to sin? Why is he saying that we're under the law, we're released from the law, when he's just been saying that we've been enslaved to sin? Does this mean that the law is sin? And Paul answers this in the negative in this next section. So verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so here we find the mechanics of sin. How does sin work? And, and when we see the mechanics of sin, we can see how we can be enslaved to sin and at the same time under the law. The law is holy and perfect in righteousness. And righteous. It communicates God's perfect righteousness. In and of itself, the law is a revelation of God's holiness, which means it's good. But when we sin, this brilliant, dazzling display of God's holiness crushes us under its weight. It condemns us. It shows us how far we are from righteousness. It draws a good line in the sand it draws a good line in the sand, and then it promises justly wrath and condemnation for crossing that line. And then the sinful impulse that we have inherited from our first father, Adam, drives us to cross that line. Thus, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death 
for me. This reminds us of what Paul already said in Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespasses. Sin is so exceedingly sinful that it exploits our weakness, the weakness of our flesh. And in exploiting the weakness of our flesh, it actually co-ops the law for its own wicked ends. The law in this twist becomes sin's muscle. The law becomes sin's muscle. But where, grace, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What Paul has been teaching us is that God, God uses even sin's manipulation of the law for our good. This is what theologians refer to as the first use of the law or the pedagogical use of the law. This is the law as teacher. This is one of the uses of the law. It's the law as teacher. And its purpose is to show us how bad off we are and how desperately we need help, how hopeless we are apart from him. This is illustrated beautifully in uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, this um, classic allegory. And one of the characters in this allegory is a guy named Faithful. And he recounts how as he was coming up the hill of difficulty before he ran to the cross for conversion, he meets Moses, who's the personification of the law in this allegory. And Moses talks to him about God's holiness and faithful is so disturbed and convicted that he begs Moses to leave him alone. So he just keeps going on his journey up the hill of difficulty. But before long, he realizes that Moses is chasing him. And when Moses overtakes him, he beats him up. He knocks him unconscious. And when Faithful wakes up, he says, why did you do that? And Moses says, because you're like your first father, Adam. And then he beats him again and knocks him unconscious again. And then when he wakes up again, he says, please show mercy. And Moses, the personification of the law, says, I do not know how to show mercy. And then he beats him again. And, and it's clear the law is about to beat Faithful to death until Jesus walks by and he calls him off. That's one of the law's uses. It beats us up. It shows us how great we are in need of Christ. And so from all of this, we see how hopelessly impotent the flesh is against sin. Even when aided by the law, apart from the Spirit, we are hopeless against sin. Indeed, sinful flesh plus the law actually equals Worse condemnation. Through the commandment, Paul says, sin becomes sinful beyond measure. The flesh is no match for sin. And that is the idea that now Paul will go on to illustrate. That's the principle that Paul illustrates for this last half of Romans 7. And with this passage, we are thrust into a pretty serious interpretive debate. Right, Leading up to this point in the passage, Paul has clearly been contrasting between Two different states of being, right? Being under slavery to sin versus being under slavery to Christ. Being under the law versus being under the Spirit. Being dead to sin versus being alive in Christ. In other words, the emphasis in chapters 5, 6, and the first part of 7 are all on the state of the soul with respect to salvation. Who are we? But now the grammar changes from the past tense to the present tense. Whereas before, the conflict used to be back then, that is before conversion, 
Here in this passage, there seems to be a conflict of desires all happening right now, in the present. And so the question is this. This is the question that, that kind of all of these interpretive debates hinges on. Is what Paul describing here to be taken as a pre-conversion experience of the person who's enslaved to sin, that is, is Paul sort of embodying the character of the unregenerate to sort of illustrate what sin was like, what sinning was like when we were enslaved to sin? Or is he describing a present tense reality as a believer? Is, this, is the I in this passage Paul as non-believer, illustrating what it was like before conversion? Or is the I of this passage Paul as real-time apostle? Both sides of this debate have really strong arguments. Very, very strong arguments. And unfortunately, consulting church history isn't much help either, since both sides of this uh, debate have strong support from the past. The Paul as non-believer view is the oldest, that's the view that almost all of the church fathers taught. But the Paul as real-time apostle view by far has, the, it has been most widely held. It's taught almost unanimously by the reformers, for example. And I personally have switched many times on this passage. I've gone back and forth. Because on the one hand, verse 22 does not sound like an unbeliever. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That doesn't sound like a non-believer. And then again, verse 14 doesn't sound like a believer. I am of the flesh sold under sin. Didn't Paul just spend a chapter and a half talking about how believers are freed from sin and are no longer slaves to him? And until very recently, I held that this whole passage was Paul describing the inner workings of an unbeliever's inability to obey the law. That this was, he was writing from the vantage point of a non-believer in order to illustrate his point. The strongest support of this view, in my opinion, is the language of slavery that we find all over this passage. And to be honest with you, if the second half of verse 25 didn't exist, I would still hold that position. Look at verse 25 with me. If Paul were to have said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. I would simply conclude that this whole, who will deliver me from this body of death, thanks be to Jesus Christ, signifies conversion and the end of the struggle described in Romans chapter 7. That's what I would assume. But that's not how this uh, passage ends. Verse 25 has a second verse. It ends with, uh, it has a second half. It ends with, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And that little statement right there is a summary of verses 21 through 23. And Paul is saying all of this after he has said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, which seems to imply that what Paul is talking about here is not an experience foreign to him as a believer. Now, for those of you that I've lost, let me bring you back in right here. This is where you can come back to me. The point that I'm trying to make is this. If this chapter sounds familiar to your own experience as a believer, I think there's good reason for that. If your Christian life feels like one of conflict, 
That's because it is. It is. In heaven, in heaven, mind you, you will be no freer than you are this very moment from the condemning authoritative bondage to sin. But in heaven, you will feel that freedom in a way that you don't just yet. So let's look at this passage bit by bit. Look at verse 14 with me. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I'm still in this fallen body. And while I have a new nature that loves to obey the law of God, I am still not entirely rid of this fallen nature that does not feel at home obeying the law of God just yet. My flesh wants to obey sin. It has muscle memory. Even though my inner being delights in the law of God and I have been freed from sin, my flesh still wants slavery. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does that sound familiar to you? Have you ever felt perplexed by your own actions? Have you ever said to your spouse, I can't, I can't believe that I just said that? Have you ever felt like a mystery to yourself? I do not understand my own actions. I hate the things that I do. I keep doing. I don't do what, I'm, what I want to do. Verse 16. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, now, it is no longer I who do it. That is, the I of verse 22 that delights in the law in his inner being. It's no longer I who do it. The me that delights in the law of God in my inner being, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Again, in my flesh. Verse 19. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Doesn't that whole passage sound like a prayer that you'd pray even if Romans 7 wasn't in the Bible? It's instinctual. Hating the thing that you keep doing. Not doing the thing that you want to do. And notice, Paul is making a distinction all throughout this passage between himself and his flesh. It's not me, it's my flesh. There's a distinction between himself and his flesh. And this is not... Paul as split personality. Rather, this is Paul as redeemed, yet not yet glorified. Verse 21, look at this contrast. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's the point. We live in fallen bodies, in a fallen world. And though we are redeemed, and the Lord has freed us from the condemnation and power of sin in a definitive and decisive and ultimate sense, that freedom is not yet fully realized. And until it is, there is struggle. The muscle memory of your fallen nature wants 
to still sin. And it is waging war against your true redeemed self. The Christian life is always an upward struggle. It's always uphill. It's uphill until we're glorified. This embattled language is more than fitting. It corresponds with our, with our lived experience, doesn't it? We live in a time between times wherein our ultimate union and communion with Christ is both already and not yet. Salvation, listen, here's the point. Salvation here and now does not imply sinless perfection. If it did, none of the commands in the New Testament would make any sense at all. This is why Paul, last chapter, can say, at one and the same time, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We've died to sin. We've died to sin. And then in the same breath, go on to say, so then you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. So which is it, Paul? You've died to sin, so consider yourself dead to sin. You've been freed from sin, so stop enslaving yourself to sin. Paul here is telling us to be who we are and stop being what we're not. And he's saying that that struggle is even present for himself. Paul is a man. He is a godly Christian man. He truly disobeys. Sometimes, Paul, the apostle, truly disobeyed. But as a redeemed Christian, his truest self is not disobedient. Here's the distinction. This passage is not a Christian experience. It's a Christian's experience, apostrophe S. It's an atypical Christian experience that Christians experience, as paradoxical as that sounds. It's not a Christian thing to do to disobey, but Christians disobey. He struggles to be what he is. He struggles to stop being what he's not. And this, he, these paradoxical instructions that he gives to everyone else also apply to himself. And so verse 24 makes total sense. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you know what that sounds like? That exasperated uh, uh, lament, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like an inward groan. Look at chapter 8, verse 23 with me. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, what? Groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what an inward groan sounds like, a groan for the redemption of our bodies. Paul will go on to say that even creation groans this groan because under Adam, all of creation was cursed and creation itself won't be remade into the new heavens and the new earth until redeemed humanity is resurrected. When that happens, the struggle of Romans 7 is over. Our bodies won't be at war with us and the law of God that our innermost being delights in anymore. Our bodies will be redeemed. They'll be our allies in the pursuit of godliness and not a struggle. This is the culmination of Jesus' work for us. Verse 25. 
Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He will. He will deliver me from this body of death when he resurrects it as a redeemed and glorified body of life. That's what we groan for. But until then, but until that time, the second half of verse 25 applies to us. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So where do we go from here? This passage was was not meant to be read in isolation from the rest of the book of Romans. So how do we conclude? I have three pastoral charges for you in light of this and in light of everything else we're about to read. The first is this, put no confidence in the flesh. You You are charged to put no confidence in the flesh. This is the punchline of the whole chapter. Paul will pick up on this thought in the next chapter when he contrasts walking according to the flesh with walking according to the Spirit. And one of the motivations for walking according to the Spirit is becoming disabused of the foolish idea that walking according to the flesh is profitable. What does that mean? What does that mean to uh, walk not according to the flesh, to put no confidence in the flesh? It means you put absolutely no confidence in yourself to be obedient. Now, that does, not mean, that does not mean that you have no confidence to obey. This is very important. It doesn't mean that you have no confidence to obey. It simply means that your confidence can't come from yourself. It has to come from God, who in Christ has delivered you from this body of death and will deliver you from this body of death, and who has given you the spirit of Christ who raised Christ from the dead. So you should be utterly confident that victory over sin is a real possibility and that it is promised as a gift that we receive only by obeying in the Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. This is a word the Christians really need to hear today. It's the opposite of what you're used to hearing. You're used to hearing that your natural desires, this is very important, you are used to hearing that your natural desires are revelations of your truest self. That your fleshly desires are revealing something about yourself. That your emotions are your gurus who are there to teach you your path to joy. And so the solution to all that ails you is peace with yourself. Get self-confidence. That's what you are told. But I and Paul are here to tell you to forget about self-confidence. Forget it. Forget about self-confidence. Self-confidence is demonic. Whoa. Did you hear that? Self-confidence is demonic. Paul does not want self-confidence, but that doesn't mean that Paul didn't labor to be faithful. Instead, he wants spirit confidence. He labored harder than any of us who are trying so desperately to work on ourselves. Paul labored harder than any of us who are doing that to be faithful. You know why? You know how he did that? He did that by not aspiring to have self-confidence by aspiring to have zero self-confidence. 
but rather aspiring to have spirit confidence, which is the gift of grace that we receive from God in Christ. It is the gift that we have for whom there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Spirit confidence given for those of us who have nothing to fear from condemnation or the threat of the law since Christ has been condemned for us is way more powerful than self-confidence. So put no confidence in the flesh. Put all your confidence in the Spirit. And you labor, you labor, you work, you work, you work hard from that point of putting no trust in yourself, but trusting in the future grace that the Spirit is going to be there to help you when you are laboring to be faithful. Second, Christian, wage war against sin. A completely wrong-headed way to read this text is to say, oh, this struggle with sinful impulses that I don't want, this whole doing the things that I hate and not doing the things that I want to do, all that's normal for a Christian. Even Paul felt it. So therefore, the sin that I tolerate in my life is no big deal. That's the wrong way to read this passage. To that way of reading this text, Paul would say, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Nothing Paul said in the last chapter is taken away by this one. Persisting in sin still amounts to volunteering our liberated selves to become enslaved to sin again. Further, this is the other reason why that way of reading this passage is wrong. Does Paul in this passage sound to you like a man that has resolved to make peace with the reality of sin in his life? Do you get that impression from Paul as you read this passage? By no means. To be a Christian means to delight in the law of God in your inner being, which means that you hate in you whatever doesn't obey God. Delighting in the law of God in your inner being means you agree with God about sin and righteousness. We should agonize over the fact that we still struggle with sin. Now, mind you, by agonizing, I do not mean wallowing. What's the difference? Here's wallowing. Oh, I'll never get better. I've tried, but I just can't do it. I've sinned again. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'll just never get better. That's wallowing. That is worldly grief, and it produces death. There is a godly kind of agonizing. Agony over persistent sin is a good thing because it indicates that at your core, you agree with God about sin and righteousness. It means that you fear Him. And if there is one thing that we desperately need in the church and in this culture and in this country, it is a reverent fear of God. We take ourselves way too seriously. We take our reputations and our plans. We take our reputations, our plans, our pet causes, our social media interactions, our platform. We, we take it all way too seriously, and we take God way too lightly. And it should be the exact opposite. We need to fear God. We need to take him gravely seriously. And if we do, we will not make peace with sin in our lives. We will heed Christ's charge to adopt an eye-gouging, hand-severing kind of strategy for killing sin. 
by the Spirit, we can do this. Spirit confidence does not mean that we don't work hard. By the Spirit, we can do this. Until our bodies are glorified, it will always be an uphill battle, but that doesn't mean that progress is hopeless. Christian, you could not have more help in this battle than what you already have in the Spirit of Christ who dwells you. Third and finally, hope in Christ. Paul exclaims, exasperated, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are not without hope in this world. The condemning power of the law has been overcome for us by Christ. There is a real sense in which Christ has already delivered us from this body of death. There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has done for us what the law could never do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, in order that we too might walk in newness of life, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk in the Spirit. For those of us who are in Christ, this is amazing, for those of us who are in Christ, the law can't condemn us because in Christ, we haven't broken it. We get Christ's righteousness, which is a perfect righteousness that hasn't broken the law, which means there is no condemnation for us at all. So there is a sense in which Christ has delivered us from this body of death, and yet, even for those of us for whom all of this is true, we are still waiting for Christ to deliver us from this body of death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer, Jesus Christ will. And this is what we groan for. It is right for our groanings over sin to not exist in the abstract, but rather for them to be directed back to Christ and the hope of resurrection. That's the difference between godly agony and wallowing. Does it drive you back to Christ and hopes of the resurrection? The experience of Romans 7 rightly urges us onto Romans 8. And so, Christian, take heart. You may have a lifetime of struggling in this holy war against the desires of your flesh. But what is that to an eternity of sinless joy and a glorified body that by default obeys? It's a privilege. It is a privilege to fight right now. And it is the hope of the Christian life to one day beat our spears into pruning hooks, into plowshares. And if you're not a Christian, the invitation is for you to become one. Now, it's true that remaining in your enslavement to sin, alienated from the benevolent authority of Christ as your master, is easier. It requires little effort. All you have to do is stay where you are and not do anything. But its end is destruction. And even in the present, the fruit of sin's Investment is always deadlier than as advertised. So coming to Christ means, coming to Christ means entering into struggle, yes. But it's a holy, joy-filled struggle that is motivated by condemnation-less grace. It's a righteous struggle that consummates in the best resolution of the best story that has ever been told. And you're invited to join us.
And I would ask if you're not a Christian to stay in your seat and consider this invitation as we who are Christians share in this meal of communion together. This is a Christian meal. So if you're not a Christian, please don't take it. Instead, you should consider every piece of bread taken and every cup of juice consumed as an extension of the invitation to join us. The community of the redeemed is an entirely inclusive community in the sense that anyone and everyone is invited to join. And it is rigidly exclusive in the sense that you can only come in through Jesus Christ. Letting Him liberate you from the enslavement of sin and bringing you under His loving rule. So that's what you're invited to. And Christian, you should receive this meal as a promise. You should receive this meal as a promise. The body of Christ broken to deliver me from this body of death. The blood of Christ shed to deliver me from this body of death. This table is a promise. It's a foretaste of better things to come. Christ meets us here to offer us assurance for the redemption of our bodies when they will no longer serve as allies to sin, but rather as slaves of righteousness, glad slaves of righteousness. Christ is promising you of this with this meal. And so receive this meal as a promise. He's he's setting a table for us in the wilderness and we should receive it with gratitude. I'm going to pray and then ask for the Christians to come and partake of this meal. You'll come down along this aisle to my left and receive your hand sanitizer and come and get the elements over here and then you'll return to your seat along this aisle to my right. Let me pray for us and then we can come and take. Lord Jesus, thank you for this meal. You feed us here with the promise of resurrection. So we receive this meal with gratitude. Nourish our souls with these promises. Your body broken for us. Your blood shed for us. Use the ordinary means of grace that we enjoy on this weekly worship gathering to do extraordinary things among us. We look to you and no other. We put no confidence in the flesh. We renounce our sins and beg for grace to overcome them that have a stronghold in our lives. Do all of this for your glory, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for our joy. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.